from AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. Here's your host, Chip Lutz. Hello, friends, and welcome to LaughBox, the official podcast of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Today, we've got my laugh daddy, Stephen H. Wilson, founder of the um, World Laughter Tour with us today. I'm pretty excited. Uh, Steve, to me, knows more about humor and laughter than any person I know. He's been in the game longer than anybody I know. Um, if it is such a thing, the humor game. He just uh, he inter- actually is the person that introduced me to uh, the association and brought actually more members in than anybody I know just because he's such a firm believer in what humor and laughter can do in your everyday life just to help you, you know, get past the gunk and get on big um, back with business. So welcome, Steve, to LaughBox. Thank you, Chip. Always happy to be here. I can't wait to hear what it is that we have to talk about. <laughs> Me too. That, that'll be awesome. So if you could share with our people a little bit about... Um, you know, who you are, what you do, where you're from, what's your, what's your humor your humor bag? I am, uh, at last birthday, I was 76 years old, or 76 years young, probably more like the way I think about it, because I think young, and um, age, uh, what is it, somebody said, uh, it's mind over matter, if you don't mind, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> But at this stage of the game, and, I, and I've been really immersed in applied and therapeutic humor since 1984. Been doing jokes. T- I found out as a kid, in like in kindergarten or first grade, I can't remember which it was, I went to school and I told a joke that I heard my dad tell at his pinochle group in our kitchen and I was allowed to hang out while the men played pinochle and um, I didn't understand then uh, that I had the ability to hear a joke one time and be able to repeat it and tell it with uh, pretty good delivery. Uh-huh. I've since come to uh, understand that uh, only a two to five percent of people have that ability. I did not know that. Uh, and most not remember a joke. I, I, my advice is if you can't remember a joke, don't dismember it. Uh, and and I, I don't teach how to tell jokes or comedy from that point of view. Um, but I do think there's one important rule that anyone who wants to tell a joke uh, should abide by, and that is that the punchline comes at the end. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I know so many people that uh, yeah. they're, they're not as good at telling jokes, and they'll start you know murdering a joke, but then they'll tell the punchline, and they're laughing so hard that they can't get the rest of it out. But even that to me is funny because it's just funny to see people laugh like that, that they're so... <laughs> They can't get it out, but it's hilarious. And you're, right. you're, you're waiting in anticipation, but you know right. you don't really ever get there. That's right. Did you hear the joke about the guys in prison where they, they, it's, it goes, you just don't know how to tell them, and so they start with the punchline, you know, that kind of thing. Well, anyway, I, so here I've been telling jokes 
got sent home from school that day with a note to my parents. Uh, Stevie should not be telling this kind of joke uh, in school. And I will tell you the joke now because I've found when I tell the story that people get curious about it. And, and the joke was this. Uh, if I was walking down the street, he passes a pet shop. And there's a sign in the window, and it says, we have talking parrots. And he says, oh, talking parrots. I've always wanted to have a talking parrot. And he goes and he says to the clerk, I would like to have a talking parrot. And the clerk says, you know, we have something even better. I've got one parrot who sings. Like, I saw a singing parrot. I, I think I would love that. Can, can I get a demonstration? So they go over to the cage. And uh, they're looking at this beautiful parrot, and the clerk says, now, if you lift up his left leg, he sings a star-spangled banner. And if you lift up his right leg, he sings, God bless America. And the customer says, well, what happens if you lift up both of his legs? And the parrot says, I fall on my ass, you dummy. <laughs> so that was the joke. I heard it once. Uh, I, I, the guy, the men laughed, and, uh, here's a, they're smoking cigars and playing cards. I knew it was, must have been funny. I sort of got it, and I told it in school and, uh, was informed not to do that anymore. But I, there's a thread through my life of entertaining people. Uh, at the age of four, I actually had my first performance. It was a tap dance school and I had a recital in Philadelphia at Town Hall and I was a waiter tapping across the stage and through my life I've been a folk singer and an actor uh, and a teacher uh, a magician uh, I, I've done lots of things I guess I just I like to entertain and it was in 1984 when I went to a workshop that was conducted by Joel Goodman. He's the founder of the Humor Project. I think he's one of the unsung heroes in the field of applied and therapeutic humor and laughter. Because Joel ran conferences for many years and thousands and thousands of people were turned on to the wonderful things that humor and laughter could do for us. And he really got the ball rolling. Uh, I was fortunate enough to learn some things directly uh, from Joel, uh, and, and we'll we'll come back to that because I actually have had the great good fortune to be involved uh, with AATH at a in a very early informative period of the organization, but at a time when I could learn about the field directly from people that I consider first-tier pioneers in the modern era. Um, I'll, I'll mention a few, I will I'll leave people out, but this is one of the great things about AATH. You rub elbows, you, you sit and you talk, and, and you get to deal, learn from, you get to learn from uh, these people who are so significant uh, in the movement, and it really had to be a movement because there's so much wrong-headed thinking about humor and laughter. And we, we have to 
uh, heal the psyche of human beings, especially in, in North America, probably a lot of the rest of the world too. But, you know, uh, Dr. William Fry Jr., a psychiatrist who did the early work with Norman Cousins uh, on laughter and what happens in the bloodstream. And, and you can do some science about that. And he did the earliest work on laughter and its effect on the cardiovascular system. And I had a chance to learn directly from Bill Fry and became a friend and a colleague. And he's no longer with us. And I, I want to keep advancing his work. And there are other people. I know I'm going to leave people out, but Lee Burke, I mean, he's just amazing. Lee and Bill Fry started out together doing the research in this field. You can meet Lee at an AATH conference. Patty Wooten, uh, a PhD nurse with clown characters, wrote Compassionate Laughter and the Handbook of Hospital Clowning. Uh, and Karen Buxman and Vera Robinson. And uh, I, I know I'm going to, there you go. I'm going to leave people out. Cliff Wooten, another psychiatrist. Uh, anyway, the, I, there are people that I consider the first tier of, uh, of, of scientists, of pioneers in the modern era, you know, over the last, say, 40 or 50 years. You get to meet those people personally at AATH. Um, and uh, I found that I had a knack for this. And I was trained as a psychologist. I've been working in prisons. I thought that was going to be a career. Uh, I'm very concerned about um, what the so-called correctional system, criminal justice, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I really wanted to help fix that system. Now, of course, we find that people who study applied and therapeutic humor can take programs into prisons. And they're so well received. Uh, my first mentor in the field of, of corrections is a woman named Martha Wheeler. Martha Wheeler was the superintendent of the Women's Reformatory in Ohio. There was only one institution, about 400 women inmates there. And she was the first woman president of the American Correctional Association. She had a social work degree and a law degree. Uh, and she hired me to be a psychologist at the Women's Reformatory, and she took me under her wing and taught me so much. And one of the things that I learned was when you take these kinds of programs and you do it with integrity and you do it ethically and you, you have a lot of fun, but people who are in prison are deprived of almost everything. And so they have a high degree of gratitude for somebody that comes in teaches from their head and their heart, brings in information, very easy groups to work with, men and women. I, I, I've been to all kinds of prisons, uh, and I found a way to engage the audiences there. That's very challenging. Mm -hmm, I imagine. Yeah, but um, uh, so there's so many opportunities to apply the things that uh, AATH is about things you can learn there so many places you can take them um, and I you know so my background was trained as a psychologist uh, personally loved entertaining people as a folk singer I used to do 
in the days of the folk revival hoop nannies at prisons. No way. That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Cash wasn't the only one. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a, I have found it a wonderful population to work with. But I do give this advice. Uh, don't, you shouldn't accept an, a, a gig. You shouldn't accept an opportunity to present a laughter or humor program to a population that you're not personally comfortable with. It won't work. And it's okay to not be comfortable with every population. Uh, maybe, uh, whatever it is, maybe you get along well with, uh, with seniors, with the, the you know, an and del- and organization delivering senior services or aging services, maybe the term they're using these days. That's great. But if you're not, then work with younger people. If you're not comfortable with teenagers, don't try to work with them. They'll eat you up alive. That's uh, true. I, I had a student once who had an assignment to uh, do a clinical practice program uh, for her college degree uh, in a mental retardation facility. And she said, Mr. Wilson, I, I would like you to change my assignment. I may not sound right, but I'm not comfortable with those people. And um, so I tried to convince her. I said, Carol, you know, you have to do an assignment in mental retardation sooner or later. This is your first one. Why don't you do it now and get it over with? And she said, well, Mr. Wilson, that was my mother's philosophy. It's called saving the best for last. And I don't live that way. She said, I'm saving all the crap for last. And maybe I'll die before I have to do it. And her, I thought her argument was so compelling that I changed her assignment. Uh, unfortunately, she lived. Uh, <laughs> so she ended up doing it anyway. But the point is, you know, work with populations that you're comfortable with. Um, if you're not knowledgeable about the psychology of the population uh, or its physical uh, strengths and limitations, Maybe you could hook up with a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, and the two of you could take programs in there, and that could be very successful. You know, with uh, you saying, I like that, saving all the crap for last, because um, to me what that speaks to is um, finding the joy right now that, you know, we, we get all busy and stuff, and, you know, we think we have to do all this stuff, and sometimes we miss the joy that is out there you know, in our everyday lives of being in the moment. And I like that, you know, saving the crap for last and just, um, you know, finding the joy in today, you know, that, that's what that speaks to me on. You know, well, there's this old saying, you know, live every day as if it's your last and one day you'll be right. But the, the, <laughs> point, is, the point is, if you stop for a moment, if you wake up in the morning and say, what if this turns out to be my last day? The future's not guaranteed to anybody. Nobody knows for sure that they're going to be here tomorrow. Uh, so suppose this was your last day on earth. How would you want to spend that? And that's where the joy and the ha- wouldn't you want it to be happy? Wouldn't you want there to be some love exchange shared by you, taken in by you, uh, you know, offered by? I mean, think about that. That's a great motivator. And if you're lucky, if it works out, you get to do it again tomorrow. Uh, 
So I like that idea. Yeah, get grab on my my slogan in life uh, because I started teaching the, this kind of concept. So I developed a philosophy, and it was called "Don't postpone joy." Those three words, you know, the poet said, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Mark Twain said, life is uncertain, so eat your dessert first. Mm -hmm. A habit, as you know, that I do, with, uh, new, especially with new friends and company, we order a little bit of dessert. You know, you may not have room for the sweet stuff if all you eat is all the vegetables first or something like that. So eat save, dessert. First. Save all the crap for last. <laughs> That's right, and here's, here's my modern version of it is carpe the heck out of this diem. Nice. I like yeah. that. Make the most out. So. And so this, this is what I've been doing. In 1990, uh, through, 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 well, I'll say in 98, I got the opportunity to go to India uh, to teach these uh, kinds of ideas, workplace, humor at work. Ideas. That's what they invited me to go to India for. And when I got there, I found out what well, they've been laughing and doing laughter practices and yogic practices of laughter for 5,000 years. Uh, and then, and, you know, there's this modern thing going on in Mumbai uh, with Dr. Kataria. And I looked at that and I, I met him and I saw it. Well, this is very interesting. Um, if you study the history, what you find out is that. Uh, in the Western world, we have, were busy teaching people how to have a better sense of humor. So this little organization called NFL, Nurses for Laughter, morphed into uh, the American Association for Therapeutic Humor, which morphed into the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, now sort of slash laughter. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the, in the Western world, we were busy uh, you'll find articles and books. Here are six ways to have a better sense of humor. Here's ten ways, sixty-four points. But it was all about getting people to appreciate humor and have more of it in their lives. Primarily, I think, because what we understood, we recognized that two things happen when you embrace humor. Um, one is it shifts your perspective. You see things in a different way. And out of some cancer support groups came the saying that humor makes the unbearable a little more bearable. So that, that kind of summed it up. But the other thing is that if you find something humorous, if you see the lighter side of a situation, chances are you will laugh, you will giggle, you will chuckle. It doesn't have to be a knee slapper. And we were beginning to understand that in that laughter is where some important changes happen. There's a, the, the neuroscience of uh, laughter, what happens in your brain, what happens in every system of your body when you laugh. We could research laughter and the physiology and the changes of laughter uh, much better than we could research the psychology of humor. And so I brought that back from India. And I said, because I had been teaching activity therapy in college, and, and training uh, mental health professionals in non-talking therapies, activities, things you do and it helps people 
express emotions and be more emotionally intelligent and have relief and and get on with their lives and strengthen the things that work well, all that kind of, well, when I came back from India, uh, I found Karen Buxman, I found Jackie Kwan at AATH, and I said, yeah, there's some interesting things going on, and I think instead of, or in addition to, uh, teaching people how to have a better sense of humor, we really can create uh, programs, classes, activities in laughter. We, we can study it, we can validate uh, both the humor and laughter by studying laughter. And they said, let's do it. Let's call it the World Laughter Tour. Um, and that became what I think of now as my major contribution to the field. Mm -hmm. it, going to the conferences and then eating, uh, you know, people meeting Cliff Coon, meeting all. I mean, it just was amazing meeting Bill Fry and Lee Burke and hearing, listening to them, hearing them, learning from them. Uh, and I just said, you know, I, I don't have to invent anything new. Uh, these people have laid the groundwork. Well, what we need to do is understand what they have learned and let's advance their work. If we just do that, it will be great. So I've been training people in uh, therapeutic laughter, how to create therapeutic laughter. Uh, the, and that is, a, by the way, semantically, the appropriate term is therapeutic laughter. Laughter therapy was a term we use, but it really has a different meaning. Um, and you get it better, I think, if you think about horticulture. Uh, there's a thing called uh, therapeutic horticulture. So it's an activity where you're planting and growing plants, and it, and it could be, you know, directed to um, uh, emotional health and mental health. Uh, but uh, horticulture therapy is, is a place you would take a sick plant. And therapeutic horticulture is where you would work with plants in order to have some mental, better mental health. Right. So the same laughter. Laughter therapy is really where you take your, a, a laugh that's in trouble, and then you can help fix that <laughs> laugh. <laughs> Help me, doctor. My laugh, my laugh is broken. <laughs> oh, oh, doctor, my laugh. I, which is interesting. Many people come to therapeutic laughter sessions um, saying, I've lost my laughter. And uh, they want to regain it. They want to get back in touch with it. Uh, some people come because they uh, were raised, they came from families where they loved laughter. People laughed a lot. Uh, and they want to do more, they want to know more about it. Um, and, and the World Laughter Tour, what we've been able to create uh, is coursework in how to create therapeutic laughter. Um, it's a certificate program, you get certified in it, you become qualified. It's the only course uh, we've been able to do it because of my background and the way I do things. Uh, that is approved nationally for continuing education. So you don't need any particular educational background to take the course, which starts out as two days followed by a year of follow-up coaching and advice and help. So it's really a one-year program, two days in a live workshop. Anyway, uh, you, you don't need any particular background, come and take the course. But if you do have 
a background in nursing, social work, uh, counseling, activity therapy, recreation, you can get continuing education credits. And uh, we have a code of ethics. We have a very high standard of professionalism. And it's the only course of its kind that has that approval. And we're very proud about that. And we're very proud that so many of the seven thousand accounts so far um, have sought membership with AATH. They find people from all walks of life. They find colleagues. They learn more. They. I think it was, I was told that George Harrison wrote this line: uh, "The deeper you go, the higher you fly." Uh, and, and the I higher think, you fly, the deeper you go. So come on. Well. I don't think that's what he said. Uh, no, that's on, but, the, that's on the, the White Album. <laughs> it's, a, it's a song, yeah. Hey, oh, me, and oh. Char- me and Charlie Manson know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There are, so there's people who've known that, but I think that's what this coursework in AATH is all about. And through AATH, I, I learned uh, how to create a curriculum mm-hmm. uh, and... Uh, Turned out to be the only course of its kind that I know of that's taught at a college level. Uh, there's a couple of colleges that have adopted the curriculum. Well, I like what you were saying as far as like, you know, people go to these, these programs, you know, they come, sometimes they've lost their laugh and then they get, you know, through that, you know, because uh, I know it's a, from personal experience, you know, it's a systematic, repeatable activity that people can do that, you know, that creates benefit for them. What are some, you know, since you know, you know, this, you know, technically better than anybody I know. What are some of those things that happen for people when they get their laugh back and they're actually able to laugh? You know, being going through trying times, what are some of those things that happen, you know, phys- physically? Yeah, yeah. Well, you feel better. You, <laughs> yeah. It's which is not a bad goal. I mean, the thing about losing touch with laughter uh, and why it I, is uh, so serious Uh is that uh, we know that people who are born blind and deaf can laugh. They will laugh. So that tells us that laughter is not something that you learn from other people. You don't learn how to do it by watching or listening to other people. Uh, It bubbles up from the inside in a human being when the conditions are right. So so every human being, unless there's some damage neurologically or something, is hardwired for laughter. And the neurologists who made this discovery said that it, they believe that we can conclude from that that laughter has survival value. And we'll talk about some of the thing when the infant laughs, and we do start, you know, if we're healthy and the conditions are right, we start laughing at about out loud about four weeks of age, somewhere in that, very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Native American cultures, when an infant has its first laugh, it causes a feast, a celebration, and the adult who was with the infant at the time becomes the laughter godparent. It's so important, they knew it. Uh, pre-science, you know, they knew it without the scientific information, but if that baby laughs spontaneously, that means certain things. That means that infant is not in pain. Pain diminishes the inclination to laugh. That 
infant is well fed, well nourished. Hungry and starving infants don't laugh. That infant, that baby is in a relatively calm environment. Bill Fry used to say, you know, people in chaos are not inclined to laughter. If, you, if you're living in a situation where people are drunk or slamming doors or screaming or fight, there's not, not going to be a lot of laughter. So the environment is right. The person, and this, and you keep this, this is true all of your life. You're not in pain. You are uh, relatively comfortable with the basics of uh, psychologist Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, your basic needs, food, clothing, and shelter are being met. Uh, and you are loved. You're surrounded by love and your environment is calm. And next thing you know, dopamine and other neurotransmitters start to be created in the brain and you start giggling. And those chemicals then go to every system in the body, the muscular system, so your muscles relax. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? Because tense muscles come with stress, and muscle tension hurts. You get a backache. You, you, if you're trying to heal from uh, maybe a surgery or a broken bone or something, you want those muscles relaxed. You don't have as much pain. The brain is producing the endorphins, the body's natural painkillers. You get a little bit of pain relief just from the giggling. Uh, you get your digestion is improved. Your heart works better. Your blood vessels change size. Dr. Michael Miller at the University of Maryland has got some excellent research on this. Uh, your blood vessels actually expand so you get a better flow of blood to your heart, the kind of thing that prevents heart attacks. Uh, Lee Burke has some fascinating studies of cardiac rehab and how if you add humor, you tremendously reduce the potential for subsequent heart attack. It just, so, so many of those individual things happen. So if a person says they've lost their laughter, um, we take that seriously. Uh, in fact, um, Bill Fry taught me, he said, you know, the term to die laughing is just a figure of speech. And his work with cardiac patients, he discovered that true mirthful laughter comes with a sparing effect for the cardiac patient. The cardiac patient is truly amused, just a little bit of amusement, and that's not going to hurt them. But he said, the term dead serious, that's something you better think about. <laughs> so I learned these things, and, and what I've done is, uh, I'm not a researcher. But I have learned to distinguish between good research, a mediocre research, and poor research, because a lot of outrageous claims uh, are made about what laughter can do that are not that are not true. But it does so many good things uh, that uh, you know. We what I do is I take the research and say, now how can we deliver that to people? Not just saying, oh, this study and that study but get them involved in activities that they can learn, that they can teach other people. We do laughter exercises. We play non-competitive games. Sometimes we bring in some music. Uh, there's a lot of uh, different uh, modalities that we can use it all under the big umbrella of therapeutic laughter. Uh, and, uh, that, that's where I am. It's been terrific. Yeah. and. I 
I know that you've made a big impact for a lot of people with uh, therapeutic laughter. Um, it just, it's an amazing uh, thing, you know, and, I, and I've yeah, been through programs as well where, you know, uh, people come in and, you know, say their laugh is broken or they just haven't laughed for a while and um, they go through um, a therapeutic laughter session and afterwards, you know, I heard them share with me that this is the first time I've laughed, you know, in, in X amount of time and that they, they do feel so much better afterwards because they had the opportunity to laugh and it's just like, we want it so bad. We want to laugh, but sometimes it just eludes us that 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 giggle, that laugh, and you know we need it in order to survive. In my opinion, I lost the audio there for about thirty seconds. Oh well, sure. hopefully it recorded on my. Head. That was really profound. You missed some of the most profound stuff I ever said right there. Well, then let me say right now, I I agree with you. <laughs> I, I, I support whatever you were saying. I support that. <laughs> Good. I'll expect the check in the mail. <laughs> so, yes, I think I have one for you right now. <laughs> the check. There we go. If, the check. Um, you're looking at, cause I, you know, we're um, soon be running out Here's of time. You know, in looking to not postpone enjoy and, you know, uh, saving the crack till last. You know, if people are looking to um, add more laughter to their life, what are some things that you found, you know, they can do? I know, you know, go through the training, going through a, um, um, going through a, um, a um, program is good, but um, you cannot hear me. So I am waiting for you. Now you can hear me. All right, beautiful. So... Hopefully, again, it was recording on my side. But um, if people are looking for something they can do so they're not postponing joy, they're living for today, what are some things that they can do to um, add a little more laughter to their life daily? Well, I, I like the uh, research protocol that Dr. Uh, Burke, Lee Burke, did um, with the cardiac rehab patients. Uh, they just uh, they had two batch groups. They were both getting traditional cardiac rehab at a hospital uh, fitness center. Uh, but one group was told uh, every day, find uh, something on television that you think is funny. Uh, and it, it can just be 30 minutes. It could be a short sitcom, but something that you think is funny and keep a journal. Uh, so that that's something you do. It, it turned out at the end of a year, uh, in that study, uh, the patients uh, that uh, did not keep a humor journal, 46% uh, of them had a second heart attack. Wow. But the ones who kept the humor journal, only 8% had a subsequent heart attack. So very significant. Uh, and, and Lee Burke does excellent research. So I would say just be sure that you look for things that you think are funny. Humor is gonna to lead to laughter, but humor is very personal and very subjective. What you think is funny, I might not laugh at. What cracks me up might not get a, a giggle out of you. So everybody would do well to look at 
uh, maybe a list. I've got lists of senses of humor. Which are your senses of humor? So identify your own and then nourish them, enrich them, feed them. Make it a habit. You go into a novelty shop or a toy store and look for things that amuse you. Maybe it's just a little wind-up toy that'll bounce across your desk, you know, while you're on a phone call, and it will cheer you up. It will break. It's just funny to you. It doesn't have to be funny to anybody else. You find it humorous. You're going to get that warm feeling inside, uh, which is neurotransmitters starting to circulate and other chemicals in your body, and that's starting to go to every system your heart, your lungs, your digestive system, your muscles, your bloodstream, uh, and uh, that's just all that's So when you check out of the toy store and the clerk says, and how old is the child? That uh, you find me say, 46, I'm buying up for me. I need to surround myself in my office, in the glove compartment of my car. Um, you know, wherever I go, I want to have some things that I just, catch it out of the corner of my eye. I think it's funny. That's good enough for me. Um, so I think, you know, those are some things that people could do. Learn about your own senses. Give yourself permission for having it. Hang out with people who you think have a good sense of humor. I yeah. think you can learn something from other people. What are they laughing at? What do they think is funny? Let me try it. Let me try to see it from their point of view. You know, you try a little empathy with a, with a person who is funny or thinks funny. Remember that you don't have to be funny to, have, to improve uh, humor and its benefits in your life. You have to see things that you think are funny. You don't have to be the source of the humor. Um, you just appreciate it. I'll tell you a, a fun thing to do. Go when you go to the drugstore or a card shop. You're looking at the uh, greeting cards. There's be whole sections of humorous cards for any occasion. Right. Somebody said that the the, the get well cards these days have become so humorous that if you don't get sick, you're missing half the fun. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the internet now is an enormous uh, source of humor that you can find uh, that you can tailor your searches to your sense of humor. Maybe you like puns. I love puns. And somebody send me an email or on Facebook or Twitter, uh, they'll have a pun. Maybe it's about uh, an animal. Well, you can go right to Google and you can Google, you can search animal puns and you'll have a quick comeback. You'll have another one. There's dozens. It's just the way the world's organized to deliver uh, the information. Uh, uh, Siri, Siri, can you uh, give me a pun about cows? Uh, and Siri comes up and says, uh, uh, that's utterly impossible. <laughs> anyway, there's so many ways now. Uh, on any device that you've got a smartphone, you've got a, a tablet, an iPad, you've got a computer. Uh, and by the way, there are still there's still a building in your neighborhood called a library. Uh, so what is what is this thing you speak of? The <laughs> library. I know, I know. Well, uh, our, our, I lived in a town that was so small 
How small was it? It, it? Well, if you wanted to, you had to wait for the book to come back, and then you could take it out of the library. Um, there's a joke in there somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. I think we're going to have to dig deep on that one. <laughs> well, I always use two kinds of humor, you know. If, if, if uh, people laugh, then I say, well, that was funny humor. And if they don't, I say, well, that was illustrative. <laughs> yeah, I um, I like my library here as well. I almost uh, you know find pretty much anything I need there. Um, well, I really appreciate you spending a little time with uh, with us today. If after today people want to find you, where do they find you? I'll be right here. <laughs> Great. Mostly, mostly, I'm in my office uh, or the kitchen. Um, and uh, I have an 800 number. It's a toll-free number. So uh, I love to talk on the phone. I love when people call and answer questions. I would rather answer questions on the phone than through email. Uh, so email is a little tedious for me. But my 800 number is 1-800-NOW-LAFF. And we spell it N-O-W-L-A-F-F. -F. It's 1-800-669-5200. Three, three. My email address is steve at worldlaughtertour.com. And then uh, the website, which has got lots of information, our workshop schedule, and lots of freebies that you can download if this is the thing you're interested in, worldlaughtertour.com. A few years ago, I became the director of National Humor Month. That's a separate uh, organization a whole month and it's April starts with April Fool's Day uh, and uh, goes through tax day and all that. started by Larry Wild a, a comedian in early TV days a funny guy's most prolific writer of joke books but I took over from Larry it's like 36 or 37 years National Humor Month go to the website humormonth.com and if you need some help uh, maybe with some finances to get to a conference or take a class or buy supplies for a project, go to laughterfoundation.org, laughterfoundation.org, uh, and you can apply online now for a grant. They're not huge grants, but we do help people. My wife Pam and I started this uh, in 2003 because we saw that there's a need to support people financially. Um, so, take a class, up the World Laughter Tour, take the course in how to create therapeutic humor, go to AATH, sign up for the Humor Academy, uh, learn more, and live more laughing. I like that. Live more laughing. Don't postpone joy or, I think what I like better, save the, save the crap for last. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's save the crap for last. Maybe we won't have to ever do it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to live my life from now on. I'm going to save all the crap for last. Well, again, I appreciate your time. It's always a pleasure. Uh, for those of you listening, this has been uh, Laugh Box, the official podcast of AATH. If you're looking for me, Chip Lutz, you can find me at unconventionalleader.com. Thanks again, Steve, for sharing your, uh, your, your humor and your insights. Um, you've made an impact for a lot of people, and I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for doing it, Chip. I will see you and everybody else uh, in April in Orlando. Uh, we're going to have a great conference. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, bud. Bye.
Bye-bye. This is LaughBox, the podcast for laughter and humor professionals. LaughBox is made possible by a grant from the National Speakers Foundation and is brought to you by AATH, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Find out more at AATH.org. Be sure to review LaughBox on iTunes. For show notes and more information about today's conversation, visit laughbox.aath.org.